Father, may your word be our rule. May your spirit be our guide. And above everything, we pray that Jesus Christ would be our chief concern. Even so, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Genesis chapter 22, starting at verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. God said to Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son, Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not harm, do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. I don't think that you can read this passage as a parent and not be shaken or even angered, right? Abraham has waited. He has prayed. He has waited for a son, a son that God promised him. And he waited for this son for years. I mean, it is not something like God promised and then Abraham patiently waited. I mean, it is, an, it is a waiting that was filled with angst. And then that son was finally born. And after that son is born and weaned from his mother, after the son learns to walk, after the son learns to talk, after Abraham comes to know his son, after he comes to know his temperament and his favorite food and the sound of his breathing while asleep and the sound of his laughter when he finds joy, after that son becomes old enough to carry wood on his is back up a mountain. God says, I need you to sacrifice that son to me. It is a horrific and barbaric thought, if we're being honest. And yet, Abraham follows through on this request of God's. God intervenes with the ram in the thicket, and we exhale. But what we see in the story, I mean, this isn't, I'm not going to dwell a whole lot here. I'm just going to, like, you know, create the angst and then walk away from it. But what we see here in the story 
is that Abraham is willing to give everything he has, everything that is important, his hopes, his dreams, his future, the bone of his bones, the flesh of his flesh, the most precious thing to him. Willing, God, or Abraham is willing to give it to God on the altar in the form of a burnt offering. We need to see that, put it in the back of our mind, because it is a precursor to what we will read in Leviticus. So would you turn me, with me to Leviticus chapter 1? Leviticus 1, and we'll just start at verse 1. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. You are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord and then Aaron's sons, the priest, will bring the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting. You are to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, are to put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priest, will, shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat, on the wood uh, that is burning on the altar. You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water. And the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. If the offering is a burnt offering from the flock, from either the sheep or the goats, you are to offer a male without defect. You are to slaughter it at the north side of the altar before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall splash its blood against the sides of the altar. You are to cut it into pieces, and the priest priest shall arrange them, including the head and the fat, on the wood that is burning on the altar. You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to bring all of them and burn them on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. If the offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, you are to offer a dove or a young pigeon. The priest shall bring it to the altar, wring off the head, and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out, of the, out on the side of the altar. He is to remove the crop and the feathers and throw them down east of the altar where the ashes are. He shall tear, tear it open by the wings, not dividing it completely, and then the priest shall burn it on the wood that is burning on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord." Now we're getting into it. Right. So, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at a number of different, actually, for the next couple of months, we're going to look over a, a number of different sacrifices that Leviticus is, Leviticus is going to lay out. These sacrifices can be broken down into five different categories. One, we have a sacrifice of ascension, a sacrifice of tribute, a sacrifice of peace, a sacrifice of purification, and then a sacrifice of reparation. This morning, this burnt offering that we just read about in chapter 1 is the first kind, a sacrifice of ascension, okay? Now, uh, all of, uh, he, here's how these sacrifices would work. This morning, we're going to just do a lot of like details, but there's something important within these de details. Before we get too much further, though, let's look at the tabernacle. 
So if we have, yep, there we go. So if you think of this tabernacle, it is laid out like this. Uh, this is the north up here. This is the south down here. East, obvious here. West over here. This is how it was always laid out with the entrance on the east side of the tabernacle. As soon as you entered in the east portion of the entrance, you would come into this courtyard. And right here, you would find an altar of burnt offering. Okay, behind that you have a basin for washing. Then you kind of get into the tent. So when you, maybe you've seen pictures of the tabernacle or even the temple where it's got the high portion. This would be for the tabernacle. It would be a tent of some sorts, right? And inside this you have the holy place where you've got your table for the bread. You've got a lampstand here and then you have an altar of incense. And then back here you have the most holy place. And this is where the ark with the mercy seat is. In the temple, this would become the Holy of Holies, okay? So this is where all of this is happening. The burnt offering happens way out here in the courtyard in the altar of the burnt, at the altar of the burnt offering, right? So I want you to just have this picture in your head of where this is happening. People are starting to enter into the tabernacle, but they haven't gone all the way into the center of it yet. We're still very far outside from the most holy place. We're outside of the holy place. We're still, we're just in the courtyard here, okay? And so when somebody uh, would want to take a burnt offering, they would take it to the very outer edge, Got that in mind? Let's talk a little bit about the offering itself. The burnt offering. There's a lot of debate about what the burnt offering is actually about. There's an aspect to which it is about the forgiveness of sins, right? It does talk about here that this will be an atonement for the individual who's bringing the sacrifice forward. However, it is not solely for the purification of sins or the forgiveness of sins. There are other sacrifices that are gonna, we're going to talk about in coming weeks and months that have to do with the purification of sins or the payment of debts, right? This is that, that's the reparation sacrifice. So this one, it, it has that aspect to it that it's about atonement, but it's not completely about it. And I just think it's important for us to recognize that not all of the sacrifices that were done in Israel were solely about the forgiveness of sins. Because that's what we most often think about. When we think about sacrifices as, you know, refined, civilized, modern people, we think about sacrifices as trying to appease an angry God. But remember the question that we've been trying to answer or that Leviticus is trying to answer. Leviticus is trying to answer the question of how do humans dwell with God? What we have here is not that question being asked and then humans going, well, let's try and offer some sacrifices and see if that doesn't make God happy. Instead, God initiates the whole process. God says, when any of you is coming forward, this is what it's going to be like. This is what I need you to do. And then God lays out the necessary rituals that are meant to prepare the people's hearts and their minds to be at home in the presence of God. Right? So we talked about that last week when we talked about this idea of holiness as not simply being good moral people or just doing good things, but holiness is really this idea of at-homeness with the sacred. And so all of this is meant to help the people enter the tabernacle, enter the presence of God in that mindset. I'm at home here. Now think about this for just a minute. If you were to be at home in the presence of God, what would need to make, what would need to happen in order for you to feel at home? 
peace. Well, I think if we recognize that we're entering into the presence of a holy God, there would be a part of us that would be like, I have, to get, I, have to, I have to get right with that God, right? I have to have forgiveness of sins. I have to have my debts paid for. So the sacrifice would do some of that, right? But remember all the way back in Exodus. We looked at this story the first week. In Exodus, God, Moses goes up on the Mount Sinai. God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. Moses comes back down, reads the Ten Commandments to the people. And then says, will you do these things? And the people say, yes, we will do these things. And then the people say, but we don't think that we can hear from God and live. So Moses, we need you to be our mediator. We need you to go between us and God. You speak to God on our behalf. You hear what God has to say and then bring it back to us. And then the text tells us that the people distanced themselves from the mountain. In other words, they distanced themselves from the, from the presence of God because they were terrified. They had seen the thunder. They, remember, and that's, That still cracks me up. They had seen the thunder and they would seen the lightning. And they were terrified. That God could kill us. That's the God who killed uh, Pharaoh and his army. That God terrifies us. And now God is saying, I want you to come into my presence. Yeah, so on the one hand, you'd want your sins forgiven. But on the other hand, (laughs) I think you'd want your fears assuaged just a little bit. Like, God, can you deal with the terror that I'm feeling? And God says, okay, I will make a way. When any of you comes, this is what you have to do in order to be at home in my presence. And so the sacrifices are rituals that are meant to bring God and humanity together. I keep using this word rituals because that's what these are. The question, though, is is how do rituals deal with our fears? How do rituals help us be at home in the presence of God? For that, I think we have to understand what rituals are. Often when we think about rituals, we think of something that is dry, that is robotic, that is maybe routine, or as something cultish, right? right? We think of like the candles on the floor in the shape of a star and a chicken being slaughtered somewhere, right? It's these really nasty rituals. Or we think of something that's just, wait, did I just take it too far? I maybe took it too far right there. (laughs) Or we think of, uh, or we just think of something that's just, it's bland, right? it's, It's just routine. There's no life to it. This is how some of us think about liturgy when we come to church. We don't like the high liturgy stuff where we're reciting back and forth or, or the pastor's reading from the script because it just, it feels too ritualistic. Let's back away from that idea just a little bit and define rituals as a system of activities done with a particular goal. All right, that's all rituals are. Rituals are a system of activities done with a particular goal. Most often, we think about it in terms of religion, but the reality is is all of us have rituals throughout our days, right? Andy and I were just talking before the service about how much we like our routines and how much we even like our daily, quote-unquote, rituals. They guide us and they help us get ready. So, you all arrived here this morning. I know that. I'm looking at you. You got here. And you didn't, 
And you got here by some ritual. You didn't just wake up and show up here. It's not college, right? You, came, you, you had a process that got you ready to arrive here. So you maybe woke up and then you took a shower and then you got dressed and then you put away the things that you used to help you get ready. Then you went downstairs and you made breakfast and you got a cup of coffee or my preferred route, you wake up, you throw on some clothes, you go downstairs and you make coffee and then you just... In, drink it all because it is the nectar of life right there, right? And then you do all the other stuff. But whatever it is, you have some routine, some pattern to your day that helps you get here. And the pattern, the the ritual, looks a particular way on a Sunday morning. It's a system of activities designed with a particular goal to get you here on a Sunday morning. And that ritual, that pattern on this morning, looks different than your ritual on Saturday morning. Because it's a completely different goal. And what happens on Saturday morning looks completely different when, during the weekday when you have to get your kids on the bus or you have to get off to work. All right? And those days look completely different when you throw a wrench into the whole thing and you're going on vacation and you've got to pack up the car and get on the road so you make it to the airport. We have rituals throughout our lives that help us to accomplish a particular goal, a system of activities designed to help us accomplish a goal. Leviticus is all about a system of activities designed to bring God and humanity together. This is the goal. And so if we can think of the ceremonial activities that are described in Leviticus in this manner, then I think we can do away with with the idea that these are simply cold, pragmatic, legalistic, and just foreign things that they had to do. But we can begin to see that for the Jewish people, this is about relationship and intimacy and presence. That even this is a grace. That it's not a cold, harsh law laid down by God, but it is a manner, it, it is a, it, they are activities given to, by God so that the people can begin to feel at home in his presence. And then if you can begin to think from that perspective and begin to see how these rituals done day in and day out and week in and week out and month in and month out and year in and year out, how they would begin to shape how one thinks about who God is. And they begin to shape uh, and form a a person. You can begin to see how they ready one to be in the presence of of God because that is their goal. Okay? So, So let's now look at the particular ritual that's laid out in Leviticus chapter 1. And God says to Moses, when any of you brings an offering to the Lord, and we can just stop right there, when any of you brings an offering to the Lord. Now, the Hebrew here is quite fascinating. The first word that I want to look at is the word lahakriv. So let me put that first one. My clicker's not working. The battery must be dead. Lahakriv. It literally means to bring something close. It's translated oftentimes as sacrifice, but it means to bring something close. The thing that is being brought close, the sacrifice itself, so this is a verb, the sacrifice itself, the noun, is known as a korban. The korban literally means, next slide, that which is brought close. 
Okay, so we have to bring something close to sacrifice something, then the sacrifice itself, that which is brought close. So if you can see from the very beginning, this ritual has this idea of closeness at its heart. It's about nearness. It's about intimacy. It's about relationship. You bring something close, right, that which is brought close in order to be close. Then God says to Moses, when anyone brings a sacrifice and, and it's something from the flock or the herd, it should be unblemished, an unblemished animal. Next slide. The word unblemished is the word tamim. Now, what's fascinating about this word tamim is that when it is applied to animals, it is translated as unblemished, right? It's without fault. It's, it doesn't have any ailment. And, and they recognize that they're not going to be perfect, but we're talking 4-H quality here, right? Like it's something you're going to want to buy and put in your freezer. It is a good-looking, pretty animal. And, and and, and that's the way that the word is applied when it's used in conjunction with animals brought to sacrifice, unblemished. But this word is not just used connected with animals. It's also used throughout the Old Testament in connection with humans. And it would be really weird for us to talk about unblemished humans. So the word that it gets translated when it's applied to humans is blameless. Yeah. So there's an idea here in the choosing of an unblemished animal, an animal that is to me. It's it's symbolic. When the worshiper goes out into the herd or the flock and they find their unblemished animal and they bring it to the tent, to that open courtyard before the altar of burnt offering, they are saying that this animal that is without fault, that is whole, that is sound, this animal is represented, representative of me and my efforts to be morally blameless, to be one who wholly worships God with all that I am. And so in the mind of the worshiper, the one who's bringing the sacrifice, choosing a blameless animal or an unblemished animal from the flock or the herd reminded them that in order to approach God, in order to be in the presence of God, I need to be blameless. Next, the animal, uh, the person bringing their animal would stand next to the animal. They would take their hand and they would lean it. Text says lay it, but it's not. It's lean it on the head of the animal. This was done for a couple of different reasons. Number one, it would connect the person to the animal. Right? It would say that this animal is mine and I am bringing this animal to the altar as my substitute. So there's this deep connection that happens here. But again, that hand is not just placed on the animal, but rather it, they press down on the head. Like you're, just, you're leaning on the head of the animal to force it to go down. Right? Now Why? Well, what happens when you put your hand on an animal or on a person, but you put your hand on a head and you push down? What happens to that head? It bows, right? So they're literally bowing the head of the animal before the altar. They're, they're pushing the animal into a place, a position of worship before the Lord. So taken together, these two parts of the ritual where they lay their hands down, the two meanings here are to say, I am coming as a worshiper, and this animal 
is my substitute. This animal is going to worship in a way that I cannot. Or another way to say it is, as I approach the Lord, I am going to approach God vicariously through this animal. And you can really begin to see this vicari- the vicarious nature of the sacrifice in the next couple of steps. So after the animal is before the altar, after it has been inspected by the priest and been found to be uh, unblemished, and after the person has laid their hand on the head of the animal, then the person themselves would take the knife and kill the animal. The priest does not kill this sacrifice. The one who brings the sacrifice is the one who kills it. Now, if it's a, if it, yeah, the priest is the one who kills it. I'll just leave it at that. Then, after, and the reason that the person is killing is, to, is, a, is a way of saying, I am consecrating my whole self to God. I am bringing all that I am in life and death before the Lord. Then the priest would take the blood from the animal, and we begin to splash it on the sides of the altar. Now, there's a lot of discussion about what this meant. Blood is typically connected with the purification of sins, and so there's definitely an aspect to which this part of the ritual is to say, communicate to the person, your sins are forgiven. But while that's part of what's happening here, it's not the whole thing that's happening here. We have to remember what blood symbolized for ancient people. Blood was both life and death, right? Blood was the thing that kept you alive, but when you lost it, you were dead. It had both of these qualities interwoven into it, and so it was life and death. And now both the thing that brings life and death is being splattered on the altar. Again, it's symbolic. All that I am in life and in death belongs to God. I am fully God, and this animal who I am worshiping vicariously through, is a representation of that. Then, after the animal had been killed and his blood had been drained and been splattered on the altar, they skin it and they, they, they part it out, right? Then the priest gets involved again, takes all the different parts of the animal, lays them up on the altar, arranging them just so, and then the whole offering is burned up. There is no part of the animal that is left over. All of it ends up in the flames, this sacrifice is called the Olah, right? the, the uh, sacrifice of ascension. Because what happens when something is placed on a fire and is all burned up? You get some ash, but smoke. And it all rises in flames and smoke. And it is an aroma, pleasing to the Lord. I like that to mean that God likes barbecues. I mean, that's just that's what I'm thinking here. But the, the whole thing rises up, and now this animal is in the presence of God. Right? Again, it's this vicarious worship. This animal is doing that which I cannot do. This animal is rising into the presence of God. I, it is a, I am vicariously through this animal also in the presence of God. And just as this whole animal was consecrated before the Lord, so I, as my whole person, all of who I am, is consecrated before God. If you want to understand 
the amount of devotion that was required in the burnt offering. If you want to understand how deep the symbolism was and how much it required of the person, if you want to kind of grasp how profound this sacrifice is, then we look back to Abraham, who is willing to offer Abraham or Isaac as a burnt offering. Abraham was saying, I am willing to give you everything. All my hopes, all my dreams, my whole entire future. And in the same way, the one who brings the burnt offering before the Lord at the altar of the burnt offering is devoting their entire existence to God. And when you think about the sacrifice in that way, you can see that this was not an unemotional sacrifice, that this sacrifice would have, would have required a, a lot of emotion. It would have been a, a, a sacrifice or an act that the individual was deeply invested in if they were doing it according to the purpose in which it was meant to be done, right? If they were doing it rightly, if they were, were thinking about all that was going into this, then their whole person, their emotions, their, their, all of their faculties would be wrapped up into this. This would be a profound moment for for us, it would be like that time in which you make a profession of faith or you get baptized, right? It's not some trite thing, but it is an, a thing that is meaningful. So it's, it's a moment that we look back onto. It's one of those times in which God feels close to us. This is what is happening in this moment. But what we see is that this ritual lost all of this meaning over time and it became something that was just routine. It was just something that you, that you did. And it's why the prophets down the road are critical of the sacrificial system, right? Where in Isaiah and Amos and other places, you've got the, the, the prophets saying, God doesn't care about your burnt offerings. God doesn't care about your sacrifices. And it wasn't that they were saying those things are unimportant, but what they're saying is, is when it doesn't happen in the manner in which it was meant to be done, when a, we pull ourselves out of them and we just go through the motions of doing this, then it doesn't matter because what matters is, is how, is you, how are you as an individual showing up to this act of worship? And what's fascinating to me is even Paul gets in, gets in on this understanding of it. So 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 3. You've heard it read at uh, 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 many, uh, many a wedding, Right? So the, the translation of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 3, if you want to put that one up on the screen there, reads like this. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Now, I don't like this translation one bit. Um, it's the NIV. NIV is not a word for word. What the NIV is, is a is a slight paraphrase. It wants to take the meaning and convey it to you accurately. And so in a lot of places it is word for word, but in places like this, it's not. And I think the reason it's not word for word here is because honestly, most of us wouldn't pick up the reference. Most of us wouldn't pick up what's actually going on in the Greek here. Because the way that it literally reads is this. Next one. If I give all away all I have, and if I deliver my body up to be burned, but I have not love. I gain nothing. If I give up my body to be burned, is Paul just pulling that one out of thin air? No, I mean, he's a Jew's Jew. Leviticus is his book. He's saying, if I put myself on the altar, if I make a sacrifice and I don't 
enter into it, understanding the fullness of what I'm saying. If I'm not willing to consecrate my whole self, if I'm just showing up and going through the motions, if I don't have love, if I don't have a love for God, then it's all meaningless. This whole thing is pointless. Love is the essence here. Love is central because love reveals the motivation of the heart. So ultimately, is it about these things that we do that brings us into the presence of God? No, not at all. But the things that we do ought to be connected to our heart. And when they're connected to our heart, they begin to shape us and they begin to form us in really unique ways. They ready us. It has the potential to do that. We do these rituals in church all the time, right? We have baptism. If we just go through the, meaning, the, 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 the actions themselves without connecting the deeper meaning, if we don't reflect on what is happening here, if there's no love for God and for what God has done and for what this is represented, then it means nothing. If we come to the table, take our bread and we dip it in the cup and makes us more hungry for ham later. Like, it's meaningless. Because the, the, the actions matter. We are an embodied people. And so the physical matters. But the physical has to connect to what's underneath, to the heart. It, it must, it, another way to say it is, it has to require, it has to, we have to use our whole person, our bodies, hearts, souls, and minds. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your body, your mind. Pull one of those pieces out and the thing starts to crumble. It loses its impact. It loses its ability to shape us and to form us. It's not the manner in which God intended for us to be worshipers. Love is central. And we don't love in order to earn God's love. But it's in response to God. You see, what makes this whole thing unique is that it begins with God's movement towards us. And this is what makes Jesus so unique, right? Jesus is unique because what he did on earth is, is, is starts with God. For God so loved the world that he gave up his only begotten son that who should ever believe in him will have eternal life. Not not just, and not just life everlasting, but life with God. What Jesus makes possible is for us to enter into the presence of God. And this happens not because Jesus offered a blameless animal as a vicarious substitute, but it happens because Jesus himself was the blameless lamb who was sacrificed. Jesus didn't press his hands down upon an animal's head in order to push it into a position of worship, but rather Jesus had a crown of thorns that was pushed down onto his head. Jesus didn't slaughter an animal in order to show his devotion to God, but rather he himself, being fully obedient to the Father, was slaughtered. Jesus Jesus didn't have an animal that was burned up and then ascended up into the presence of God. Jesus himself, after his resurrection, ascended up into the presence of God and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. And we ourselves are not transformed by some offering that is burned up, but rather we are purified and we are transformed by the Holy Spirit that comes to us like a fire. Ah, this is why Paul 
says in Ephesians 5.2, if you put that up there, walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Christ is our offering. And to trust in Jesus is not just about receiving the forgiveness of sins, yes, but to trust in God and to trust in Jesus is to also consecrate ourselves to live as Christ's ambassadors, to live as Christ would live, to to say, all I have is yours. I belong, mind, body, soul, and spirit to you. And it all flows out of a response for what Jesus has done or what God has done for us in Jesus. Jesus is the korban olah. He is the offering that goes up to God. He is the one who is brought close so that we might come close. Jesus is the one who is brought close so that we might come close. He is the one through whom God moves near to us. And so our devotion, our worship, the rituals that we engage in, in baptism, in sacrifice, and service, all of these are re- motivated by our response to love God because he first loved us. We move towards God because God moves towards us. We act because God first act. Hence the reason that Paul writes, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer up your lives as living sacrifices. This is your true and proper worship. So this week, may you consecrate your whole self to God, mind, body, soul, and spirit. Not to appease God, not to earn God's favor, but out of love for what Christ has done for you. May you live as a living sacrifice. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you so desired for us to be in your presence or for your presence to be with us that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, the blameless, pure sacrifice for us. We give you thanks that he is the one who was subjected to humiliation and to the cross in order that we we may share in his reward. We give you thanks that we do not have to earn your favor, but simply have to trust. And so, Lord, I pray that this week our lives would be lived out of gratitude for what you have done for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.